Welcome to Veterans in Academics. This podcast highlights people and topics where the veteran experience and academia overlap. Join your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, in this groundbreaking content. Each week, we explore new stories, topics for you. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of Veterans in Academics. I'm your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, and today we have a very, very special guest with us, Dr. Glenn Peterson. Dr. Glenn Peterson is a full professor of anthropology and international affairs at uh, Baruch College in New York. Dr. Peterson, thank you for being with us, sir. Glad to be here. Great. Dr. Peterson, can you tell us uh, a couple lines about yourself, sir? Uh, well, relevant here, uh, I served uh, in the Navy uh, in, from 1964 to 68. I was an enlisted man, but I, I was on the air crew flying off of carriers. Uh, I got my uh, PhD after the war at Columbia University, and I've been teaching at the City University at the Baruch campus in the graduate school for just about 45 years now. Wow. Wow. Excellent. Excellent. So, Dr. Peterson, given, given your history, right, in, as an enlisted man in the Navy and, you know, serving, and I hope we get to talk about this during the episode, but, but serving, especially in a wartime military, and then coming back and, and completing, uh, you know, terminal degree yourself and, and being in higher education for 45 years, what is something that you see that uh, veterans are doing well in the space of higher education? Well, the first thought that occurs to me is um, that um, they're vastly better organized than my generation of vets were. Uh, we had eruptions, the Winter Soldier, Operation Dewey Canyon 3, when we threw our medals back, there were, there were things like that, but they were very short-lived. John Kerry turned it into a career, but most people didn't. <laughs> uh, whereas I see our vets at my campus today, uh, you know, uh, being organized. Uh, it, it's not as good as I'd like to think because my university, which has 250,000 students across about 20 campuses, it, it really varies from one campus to another. And my campus is, is not nearly as organized as others are, but, but it's there. But what I also see that, that it is simultaneously good and is problematic, and it's a lot of what my book is about, is this incredible focus that vets, and particularly combat vets, focus you have on what's right in front of you and getting through it and getting it done and not paying a whole lot of attention to other stuff. And it serves really well in the short run. But in the long run, it can turn around and bite you on the ass. And, and with the veteran students that I spend time with, I see this you know, really good focus, which looks good on the one hand, but I know what the cost of that can be. Right, right, okay. I'm glad you're talking about this because you know, um, that is something that people typically put on the pedestal, you know, is, is the laser sharp focus and the mission orientation. And you're right, there are definitely great aspects to it, but it typically has a price, right? Uh, it does. Sleep, health, 
friendships, you know, some of those things can go by the That's wayside. My book is about. <laughs> excellent, excellent. I can't wait to talk about your book. Now, on the flip side, uh, Glenn, tell us what is something that veterans could do better in the space of higher education. Well, the first thing that pops into my head, I, I'm embarrassed to say this, but the, I mean, I wrote the book for today's veterans and they could take a look at it because I, I think having a longer term perspective of, of what you've got yourself into would be helpful. And, and, I'm, and I'm not suggesting that there aren't vets who have this perspective. I've taught them. I just find that there is uh, a... Uh, an unwillingness or a fear or simply ignorance of the importance of stepping back and looking at the longer term. Okay. All right. So that big picture, right? The, yeah. The big picture. Exactly. The marathon. Right. Stop and think about, you know, what Vietnam veterans are famous for, which is PTSD. Right. And it's, we know that it's an issue now because it's, be, it's become public. But, but my sense of it is, it, it, is it's going to just be vastly worse in a few years as, as vets mature and the demands of their life, their domestic life and their work life become heavier and heavier. You're trying to hold down a job and take care of a family and the, the emotional energy that you can put in to that narrow focus gets drawn off. And, and, and that's when things start to creep back in and suddenly you realize something did happen to you. Right. Right. So, okay, since you're explaining that, before, before we get into asking you about your experience, since you've referenced your book a couple times, let's talk about it, because I think exactly what you're explaining is a great place to mention the title, uh, <laughs> because I think your title explains a lot of, of what you just talked about. Well, I just happened to have a copy of the book sitting here, and I, and I think the, uh, uh, the title is reverse here. It's called War and the arc of human experience. This is uh, the aircraft that I flew 70 combat missions in North Vietnam in. Um, and what I mean by war and the arc of human experience is that, you know, over the years uh, of having the war come back to me, uh, which, which happened 20 years after I came back when my daughter was born, uh, I've begun to understand, you know, that, that different veterans who have very similar experiences in the war have very different reactions to what happened to them. And so I be, got more and more interested in that and, and came to understand that the way that I experienced the war was very much a product of what brought me into the war. What I brought with me to the war shaped the way that I experienced it. And then in turn, that particular way that I experienced the war went on to shape the rest of my life. So that that intense focus I had enabled me to go through college and two, I was a high school dropout. I only went to the 10th grade. When I got out, I got a GED and I went through my undergraduate in two years, got a PhD, right? That, that was the laser focus. Got my job, got promoted, all of that stuff. And then 20 years, almost to the day after I came back from Vietnam, my daughter was born. And in writing this book, I could see it. I could chronologically develop that the, the, the war just gradually came back more and more. And as I began to understand something was going on uh, and, and there were these emotional channels that had been covered, opened up, um, I realized that I was gonna have to stop drinking. And that, that was when the real problem hit because I had self-medicated. I didn't know the term, 
But for 20 years, I drank heavily every day. I drank myself to sleep every night. And when I quit drinking, everything came back. That was when the really bad flashbacks. I couldn't drive my car because I thought I saw anti-aircraft fire coming up. You know, I, 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 I went and hid in a basement during the fireworks because I thought that it was anti-aircraft fire. And that was when I had to go for help and start getting treatment and medication. And it hasn't stopped since then. I, I can deal with the symptoms, but I can't make it go away. Right, right. And you know, so <clears throat> your experience that you just shared with us and looking through the book and, and the title, you know, the emphasis on the arc of the human experience. Um, I, I love that title because I think exactly what your book lays out and what you're explaining to us today is everyone has a unique experience, right? Based off what yeah. they're doing in yeah. the military. You know, a, a constructivist would say there, there are certain learnings before have influenced that. But I think it also speaks to the very, you, you know, uh, popular society likes to label, you know, just, hey, veteran, uh, combat veteran, their experience. But in reality, the experience for everyone is very, very dynamic, right? Yes. Well, one of the things, there's a whole chapter entitled Everyday Danger that, that I was interested in exploring is that portrayals of the military and of combat in particular are ordinarily done uh, in the context of uh, movies or TV shows or novels and stuff. And they're telling a story and to tell a story you have to have drama, you have to have a cinematic, you have to have kinetic action. Right. And so what happens is, the, is, that the, is that the military gets reduced to what is in fact one small, very powerful, but relatively small portion of it. And that there are all kinds of activities going on that are not only important, but can be just as dangerous, just as hazardous, just as life-threatening as being a rifleman in a, in a, in a rifle company. And, that was my experience, not only, you know, flying on and off an aircraft carrier, you know, flying in enemy territory. Um, but when I got back to the ship, because I was an enlisted man, the officers just went and, and flaked out. I had to get my aircraft ready, all my equipment for the next mission. And so I worked almost around the clock on a flight deck, which is one of the most hazardous things in the world. And particularly right. in the pitch black of dark. Um, and and I, I started thinking about this stuff that I remembered most vividly, and it, and it wasn't the missions, it wasn't the cat shots and the arrested landings on the carrier, it was working on this incredibly dangerous equipment in the pitch black. And I realized that I could not remember the fear, but I could see my body language, I could see myself, and I could see how terrified I was. And I realized that to do a lot of these dangerous jobs, you you have to ignore the fear. It's, it's not unlike being you know, an, an infantryman. You, you, you can't do the job if you think about it, but your unconscious brain is still doing it and you're storing up that stuff. And that's what I talk about this lamp concept of lamination. The day after day, you've got this stuff, you've got to come back and do it the next day. And so that's you know a real part of what I'm trying to, to convey about um, the experience of being in the military is that uh, anybody who's committed to getting their job done uh, is liable to find themselves at some times or maybe all the time 
doing stuff that in the long run piles up in your psyche, your unconscious, and then later on insists on making its way out. Right, right. Very powerful. You, you know, I, and I think for the people who, who are listening who haven't been in the military, they might not understand that, uh, right, like you mentioned, it's not like in the movies where the story's got to move along. There's a very rote aspect yes. to every action. And, you know, when I was in, everyone uh, promoted and praised the idea of doing things past exhaustion because you had to have muscle memory. You know, you had to have muscle memory and those very physical muscle memory actions, for example, are still things that uh, now, 20 years later, being removed, I can still go through the motions of those, <laughs> you know, and so I think, it, you know, what you're speaking to is, is exactly that physically, mentally, it, it gets embedded. Right. I never thought of it quite that way, but I'm, I, I'm understanding exactly what you're saying, because another part of what I described is some of the ways during the war that that stuff that seems quite innocuous, harmless, uh, manifests itself later in my life. So here's an example of this. I repair the radar equipment that I operate. Right. And, and my job is to protect the fleet, to direct attacks, to pick up down airmen, all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, so when I'm in the air, my equipment's got to work because it's life and death matter. I, we don't. I got to get the stuff fixed to get for the next mission. So I'm in an electronic shop working on a radar scope, trying to repair it. And I'm trying to do it as quickly as I can. And I'm reaching for a, a tool or I'm reaching for a part. And if it's not there, I can't do my job. And so it builds up and it builds up. So and, and, and somebody else is going to be in there after me working on it. Everything has to be in its place. We have to, we're at the end of this incredibly long supply chain in the talking Gulf, and, <laughs> right? And they're phasing out our aircraft. So there's not a lot of material anyway. Right. And so we're always short of parts, right? And we've got them hidden all over the place because back in those days, you had to fill out in quadruplicate of form every time you use something, right? So I now, I figured this out um, that when I am, for instance, working in the kitchen um, and I'm reaching for a tool or I'm reaching for a, a, a can of something and it's not there. I get agitated. What, you know, where, why isn't this here? I need this. And I, I would get upset with my wife about, and, and she couldn't understand why I was so upset about a knife not being in the right place or whatever. It took me writing this book to figure out that what happens is that I'm back in that shop trying to find a part to get into a piece of equipment that I need, you know, 10 minutes later when I'm flying and that brings the war up. And, and I have a half a dozen different kinds of things like that. Navigating, if we're driving in a car and we're not sure where we are and I ask my wife to see if she can read the map and she can't read the map and, and, and I, I realize I don't know exactly where I am, she doesn't understand why I get agitated. Once when we were flying a mission, my equipment went out and the pilot had to start navigating. Well, my pilot was so used to me navigating that he totally screwed up and we're flying over cloud cover and finally the clouds open up and we're over Hainan, which is part of Red China. And they open up on us with everything they've got, right? And how we got out of there, I don't know. But I now realize that if I don't know where I am, right. the emotions that come up are I'm gonna get killed. 
And then my wife doesn't understand why I'm so agitated. And so I experience her as that she doesn't care that I'm about to get killed, you know, and it, it just cycles. And so little common everyday experiences draw on this everyday danger concept so that uh, the, the classic notion of, of PTSD is somebody, you know, getting frightened by an explosion and hitting the deck or everything looks like an, a, 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 what do they call it, improvised explosion device, right. something like, right? That's not my experience. My experience is, you know, not having the part that I need to get my equipment running or getting lost in red China. Wow, 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 man. Okay. They, I, all right. And I, and I hope we get to talk more about this when we talk about your, your book in some more detail, but this is great. This is a great start. And, you know, I will say, um, Dr. Peterson, that we, we have had veterans from, you know, um, Afghanistan, Iraq, from Kosovo war, from the Balkans war, or Bosnia war, uh, even the Gulf war, but you are our first Vietnam veteran. Oh, really? Yes, wow. sir. So, can you tell me, sir, uh, about, you know, prior, prior to the to being on the missions and everything that you just described, what was the motivator for you joining the Navy? Did you enlist or, or were you drafted? And then, you know, what was some of it like going through your training and, and you know, how did you pick your job and, and things like that? Well, I'm going to ask one thing of you, which is I, I realize that you're being respectful but every time you call me, sir, I think I'm not an officer. Don't call me, sir. So you, you can do what you need to. I um, understand. No, I understand. I, I, <laughs> the, the book starts with me running away from home at 16. I had a, a really difficult time. And, and, and as I understood it at 16, either my father was going to kill me or I was going to kill him. And, okay. and the only solution was to get out of there. And so I ran away in the middle of the night and I went hundreds of miles away, lied about my age, got a job. And, um, and then I got another job uh, with the telephone company, working on an assembly line in the, in the telephone company. This was, uh, I left home in, in the fall of 63. Okay. And um, I turned 17 in the spring of 64. I'm working on this assembly line. I want to get off of it, but uh, I, I can't see, given you know what I brought with me, how I'm going to get off the assembly line. And most of the guys that I worked with had been in the peacetime military. They were veterans. of That was back when anybody in the working class who was in their 20s had been in the military, right? And that's what guys talked about was where they had gone, what they had done. And so I'm getting this image in my head of, I can get some training, I can do some travel, I can get off this assembly line if I join the military. And uh, right after my 17th birthday, uh, I got on the phone. Uh, I knew that they couldn't trace the call. I called my parents, I said, uh, will you sign for me to go in the military? And they were ecstatic because they didn't know if I was dead or alive. And they said, yes, we will. And so uh, just days after my 17th birthday, I went into the Navy. Um, the, the Air Force and the Coast Guard were not taking people uh, who weren't high school graduates at that point. That's how selective service was designed to, to shift people to the places they wanted them. I didn't want to be an infantryman. That just seemed like really boring. And, and so the Navy was where I went. And um, I was still in boot camp in August of 1964 when the Tonkin Gulf incident took place. Okay. I remember it happening very well. That's what, for those of you who don't know this, 
the, the Tonkin Gulf incident uh, was a, a, a very murky story about uh, North Vietnamese uh, attacking a U.S. destroyer, uh, and I won't go into the detail, but the U.S. then began bombing North Vietnam. Up until then, we'd had simply what we called advisors, uh, uh, army uh, guys, quote unquote, advising the South Vietnamese. The Navy began bombing North Vietnam, and uh, that was where I wound up a couple years later, was flying off of those carriers. Um, and I another piece of why I went in was the novel Catch-22. I realized this, you know, years afterwards working on this, that I had read Catch-22 about six weeks before I went into the military. <laughs> and I so admired Yosarian. He was like this existential hero for me. Right. And I wanted to fly. I wanted to be like Yosarian. And so the entire time that I was in the Navy, I was pursuing the opportunities to fly as an enlisted man. And, uh, you know, the, the Navy saw that I was smart. I had really high scores. They, the first thing they did was they put me in charge of, of the entire core of, of recruits during all the parades. I marched out in front. I presented the brigade to the Admiral. I'm 17. I'm the youngest guy in the boot camp. Oh, wow. But simply because of my classification scores, the, the, the chief petty officer who did this said, this is a guy, if he's only got a 10th grade education, he must really be motivated and smart. And so <laughs> they then asked me what I wanted to do. And I explained what I wanted to do. I wanted to get some training so I could go back to the phone company, but I also wanted to fly. They put me into aviation electronics, right? Okay. I found out there that if I worked on radios, that I could then go to radio code operator school and learn to send code, which meant that I would only fly in the great big transport planes, which did not go aboard carriers. And that was our ambition, was to not go aboard a carrier. Well, they also saw that I was so willing to do everything that there was this job they couldn't get anybody to do, which was to run all this radar uh, uh, on these small planes flying off of carriers. And they put me in that where I was trained at 18 to command interceptors. That was my job was, was uh, I had interceptors that I had to send out to intercept uh, an incoming attack on the carrier. And so uh, I not only learned, you know, to do that, but I was also because I was an enlisted man, I had to work on the equipment. And then the pilot that was in front of me explained to me that when a pilot turns over control to somebody on the radio, the guy who's controlling him like me, he wants to know that he's turning control over to somebody that knows what the hell they're talking about, right? right. And so my pilot taught me how to speak in this really deep commanding voice very slowly and calmly and command these planes that were under my control. And, I, and years later, I, people call it my public radio voice, right? <laughs> when, I, when I go into this deep, calm voice. And I also finally figured this out about teaching that, that uh, I, I, I headed my department for 20 years. And so I trained a huge number of new faculty, uh, part-timers and fellows. And, and, and continually, I would have these young people coming into me and talking about what we call classroom management. Young people have difficulty getting students to believe in them, right? And I had to learn how to teach them about that because I never experienced that. When I walked into the classroom the first time, I had 
what's often called command presence, right? I just, I walk in into a classroom and I take hold of it, right? And I, and I have had in my entire career, like the only student I can ever remember who gave me trouble turned out to be an Israeli army officer. <laughs> and he later came and apologized and said, it's your classroom, man, I understand. <laughs> so that's, you know, what I gained uh, in that time. Uh, and then I flew 70 combat missions doing this day in and day out, you know, controlling, finding down pilots, uh, maintaining the equipment, uh, and, uh, and then came back um, at the end. And because in my mind, what was really war was this kinetic action, the, these, you know, uh, shooting and explosions and stuff like that. And I, and I wasn't out in a rice paddy. You know, so, so nothing had happened to me. I was quite convinced that nothing had happened to me. Uh, and uh, that's why I had this 20 year period of being oblivious to what had occurred because my experiences did not match all the images that I had. And I also, I mean, this is a relevant piece of the story. I went to Catholic school and I learned all about being a martyr and this was the time of Davy Crockett. And Davy Crockett was this martyr who, if you're from Kentucky, you probably know about Davy Crockett. He went down to Texas and died at the Alamo. He was a martyr, right? And so I grew up with both the image of the hero and the martyr. And I, I wanted to do something really heroic in the war. And I never did anything that looked heroic according to what I was prepared for. And so I, that's why I came back and said, nothing to happen to me. I'm fine. And then I took all that ambition and that drive I had and focused it. And, 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 and the last piece for just this moment is that coming back from Vietnam on our carrier, they sent us down to Sydney, Australia to okay. celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Battle of the Coral Sea. And, and for people who don't know their military history, the Battle of the Coral Sea was when the, we didn't, the U.S. didn't win it, but it stopped the Japanese advance south towards Australia. So celebrating the 25th anniversary was this huge thing in Australia. I, we couldn't buy a drink. Everybody was taking care of us. But in the course of sailing from Vietnam to the Philippines to Australia to Hawaii, we went through all that area known as the South Pacific. And it's dotted with all these tiny little islands. And the planes have to fly, but nobody else wants to go out. So I go out every day and we fly over these paradisical little islands right. and it's paradise. And I have just come from hell and I'm thinking to myself, I'm gonna bail out and land on one of these islands. I mean, I really thought that. And then I said, oh, they'll just send a chopper out, bring me back and court-martial me. So then I thought, how can I go live on one of these islands? And I had read a collection of short stories uh, just a, shortly before we went overseas about anthropologists doing research in exotic places. And I said, oh, anthropologists, they get to go live in exotic places. I'll become an anthropologist. Now, mind you, I've got a 10th grade education at this point. I have no idea how impossible this will be. So I decide to do it. And because of this enormous focus and drive and ambition that I have, I do it. I don't know if anybody here has heard of Margaret Mead, who was the great anthropologist of this. I was her last graduate student. Oh, wow. Columbia. Wow. You know? and, I, wow. and I spent the rest of my career doing anthropology on little South Pacific islands. 
Wow. Man, okay. So I that was going to be one of my questions is, is how do we go from uh, working on planes and an aircraft carrier to uh, <laughs> a full professor of anthropology, right? But that's very interesting that you say that. And it was something that you saw in your military service because um, a few episodes ago, I was speaking to a Graham Cable. He's a, he was a British Army officer and a Spanish translator in the British Army officer as a British Army officer. And, you know, he mentioned he was trying to do things after he got out just to get him back to live in Spain. And when I got out, I, you know, I, I got a degree in Spanish and Hispanic studies as well for the same reason, because of what I experienced in the Marine Corps. You know, I, I was in Spain a couple times and it was the same thing as you. It's like, well, I, I could have left and got in trouble, but I got out and I was trying to figure out this whole right, thing, how to right. get back. So it's really interesting that, that you cite that. And I think it's really interesting, you know, that specifically these small islands and that you get into anthropology because I know, okay, just like we have all these stereotypes about what the military is like uh, from the outside looking in, for me, when I think anthropology, I think of like uh, ethnographer, <laughs> you know, living, living with uh, people in some remote area. So I'm an ethnographer. Okay. That's what I've done. I've lived on and off for 40 years in, in little villages and remote islands. And I chose the islands. The region is called Micronesia. It's just like Polynesia, but oh, it's okay. a little bit farther north. Micronesia um, was really popular with colonial governments. The Spanish colonized it, and then the Germans took it, and then the Japanese took it, and then the U.S. took it from the Japanese. And some of the great battles on Saipan and Kwajalein and Peleliu, where I'm sure if you were in the Marine Corps, you've heard right. of these places. Absolutely. Those are in Micronesia, as well as Bikini, where they tested the first hydrogen bomb, right? So the U.S. had taken these islands from the Japanese. And I decided, uh, as, as I started studying, um, that I, I felt like I had made a mistake, that I had participated in a colonial war that should not have taken place. And again, I, I went to Catholic school. I had this concept of atonement, that I have right. felt that I had to atone for having fought in a colonial war. And so I chose Micronesia because I knew that the people there wanted to end American rule. The U.S. kept on telling them, we're here to protect you. And the people kept on saying, yeah, that's what the Japanese said, right? And we had all these battles. But if you're here to protect us, you're only going to bring us another war. We want to get out of this thing. Right. And so I started working in Micronesia. I, I worked in, in small villages, um, and I got really interested in their traditional form of politics. They have chiefs, and uh, it's, it's a really fascinating system. And, and remind me, and I'll come back and talk about a course I just taught about uh, dynastic succession in Shakespeare. And I just taught a course on comparing these islands with Shakespeare stories. But I got to, to work on their political system. And then they began the process of gaining self-rule. And so I worked with them on a series of referendums and plebiscites to end American rule. I worked with their constitutional convention. I worked with their Congress. And I, so I understand both their own traditional system and how they map their concepts of politics and government onto the system that's been imposed by the U.S. Because in okay. order to become independent, they have to adopt the U.S. system. The U 
ultimately they become independent despite the fact that the u.s doesn't want them to they were brilliant they did this and then they joined the united nations and because i spoke the language because i lived in the village because i had worked on the constitutional conventions all this stuff they appointed me to be a member of their permanent mission to the un so that was that was another arc for me was from this being in the war this desire to atone by going to an American colony and then ultimately representing them in the United Nations. And I quickly figured out that I'm, I'm not a diplomat. That's why I'm a college <laughs> professor, because I can speak my mind. <laughs> and so I did it for a few years and I said, I can't keep my mouth shut well enough to do this. <laughs> Um, that's, that's great. That's a great story. So, so let me ask you, so when you were transitioning out of the military and, you know, there's got to be some space in between this, right? So you're doing your undergraduate work. Did you go straight into anthropology as an undergraduate? I understood. That's what I wanted to become. Okay. Okay. And so I got out, I grew up uh, in Oakland, California, uh, in the Bay area. Right. And, and when I was a kid, the local college happened to be the University of California at Berkeley. That was just a local college. And because I was only gone to the 10th grade, uh, I, was, I was worried about going to Berkeley right off. So they had opened a state college, uh, Cal State Hayward, it was called in those days. Now it's called California State University East Bay. But when I went there, it had just opened up. And I thought, OK, I'll, I'll get myself up to speed here at Hayward, and then I'll transfer to Berkeley. Well, I went up to Berkeley to use the library and I quickly saw that that anthropology department was totally focused on graduate students and that I was better off staying at Hayward. And so I stayed there uh, and uh, did my major uh, in anthropology. Um, and it paid off in the sense that because it was so small, it was up on the side of a hill, there was nothing around it. Everybody, the faculty and the students ate in the same cafeteria and this guy that I had taken a public speaking course with, I would run him into him in the cafeteria sometimes. And he, he, he knew I was an interesting guy and he would talk to me. And he asked me one day, you know, what are you doing these days? And I said, well, I'm applying to graduate school. And he said, where? And I, I'm named University of Washington, University of Oregon, California, Arizona. He's, he said, well, why don't you apply to one of those big schools back in the East? They like a mix of students. They might want somebody from a little, you know, one horse California college like this. So I applied to Columbia because he suggested it to me. Right. And I got in there. If I got in a full fellowship and, and the whole ride and uh, the rest was history. Wow. Wow. That's great. So, okay. So what's interesting there is that's a very military thing, right? To get a piece of information, get the opportunity and exploit the opportunity, right? <laughs> it's, it's a very military thing. Well, but you know, you make me think of something that I, that I want to point out that I, again, in retrospect, understand how the military really helped me succeed in academia is that I don't, I don't know how it is uh, in other branches or in other units, whatever, but where I was, people were always talking about how you got promoted. And particularly in a technical field like I was in, they were talking about the exams we have to take. And I was an E5, second class, petty officer by the time I was 19, because oh, wow. I, you know, I, I knew how to do this stuff, but I also was listening to these older guys. I can remember, you know, the chief petty officer and the older guys talking about exams and, and, and how questions were worded. You know, I still remember something. It sounds crazy, 
But um, if you put cream in coffee, does the coffee cool down more quickly or more slowly? Because obviously the cream is cooler, and it co but then it makes it thicker and heavier uh, and more mass. And so it loses its heat more slowly, right? And so this is a real trick. That's, that's the kind of thing that people were talking about. And so I learned this concept of how to navigate through an institution that to find out where the opportunities were, where the promotions were. Well, all, when I got into academia, the idea that you would figure out how to get tenure and how to get promotion was automatic to me. And, and as a right. chair, I've taught every person I'm hired on a tenure track line, your first job is to be a good ethnographer of your own institution. You have to understand that. And I see people at the university who seem to be completely in the dark about how you get promoted, you know, and how you do. And I'm thinking, how could you not understand this? But I realized that it's something that I, that I had already learned when I came in. Wow. Wow. I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, cause that was my, my experience as well. Uh, I would see people who had been at the university longer than I had been when I was at Eastern Kentucky university. And when it came time for their tenure promotion, they were scrambling, you know, to get a couple final things in their portfolio. And I, I literally never had that problem. And right. you're talking about it. I, it's because as soon as I got the job, I started thinking, what am I going to do for my That's tenure? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. how many publications do I need? How many presentations do I need? X, Y, Z. And I literally started that first week. <laughs> you, know? you know, within a couple of years of being in my department, I was already learning what it took to become the department head and, and talking to the guy who hired me. And he he saw who I was. It's the way saying the same way the Navy saw who I was and gave me all these opportunities. Every time I, I, I was ready for the next opportunity, they had it right in front of me. He pulled me in. And two years after I was tenured, I became head of the department. He he had engineered that, and I I never realized, of course, that nobody else was interested in it. I was the only one who wanted it, but that was me. I, I wanted to do it, you know, and I did it for twenty years. Wow, wow, wow! So, all right, so Glenn, you you know you you go from the Navy, uh, blast through undergrad, go to graduate school, very focused. You know what you need to do get into a Micronesian <laughs> politics with the United Nations. And now you mentioned in the beginning, you know, that you had, you had drank through this period and self-medicated, right? And then when you stopped that, that, um, you know, things started to change for you, right? So at what point but when this is starting to form for you, do you decide that you're going to work on your book? Well, it, I, I wrote five books during all of it. This is my sixth book. So it okay. was, this was a, a recent thing. Right. But I'm glad you mentioned this in the context of when I stopped drinking because I, I was just talking to you about how I learned to navigate the system. Right. That's within the university, but there's also within my discipline and and and, and getting the right. I, I got all these books published. I got, you know, 75 or 100 articles that I published. Right. Because I learned what to do and where to get published and, who, and how to do this stuff. Right. Yeah. And I did that by drinking at 
conferences, uh, meetings of a professional associations. And with alcohol in my system, I could talk to anybody. And I hung out with the, the old, old guys, you know, who a lot of them who were World II, War II veterans when I came in. And I was a very unusual veteran, right? And, and so I can remember talking, you know, in, into three o'clock in the morning with World War II veterans, you know, uh, drinking. But that got me networked into my profession. And that's what allowed me to become a full professor by the time that I was 40 was because I, I understood, it was the same way that I was a E5 by 19, I was doing the same thing, right? When I quit drinking, right, I, had, I did not see this at the time, but I can actually look, I went to my last convention of the American Anthropological Association, my professional association in December of 1991. I quit drinking in, in January of 1992 and I have not been to an American Anthropological Association meeting since then because I cannot do it. I cannot handle that the intensity, the, the careerism, everything about those professional meetings sober. I have to have a haze, a gauze between me and that, right? And I, I can now see that I steadily withdrew from that aspect of, of, the, of the profession. Um, and um, as the compensation, a couple of years after my daughter was born, this is, it was, uh, I decided that I would become a dean because I was just used to moving ahead and moving ahead. Right. And uh, there was a, another campus of the city university where it was pretty clear that I could become the dean. And I went to talk to the guy who had been my first dean, who I really admired. And he said two things to me that I'll never forget. He, he, he first said, why do you want to be a dean? And I thought, it's just the next thing to do. That's, I was just used to going on to the next step. And, and, and to him, he became a dean because there was something you wanted to do as a dean. And for me, I was just the next step. And I, I became aware of that. And then he said to me, you've got a young family. He, he knew my daughter was about two years old then. He said, if you go into higher administration, you're going to have to spend a lot of time on campus. You're not going to have the time with your family. You know, you, you really need to think about that. And I left that lunch with him and I got on the train to go home and, and, and it was a long commute at that point. By the time I got home, I realized that I did not want to become a dean. I did not want the job badly enough. And I wanted to be with my daughter badly enough that I, I gave that up. And that was this major turning point in my life when I realized that simply advancing myself, advancing myself, which had always been my pattern for no reason other than that was the next thing. Right, right. It's no longer operative for me. And um, it had a huge impact because it meant that I got increasingly close with my daughter, which is what opened up all these scars that, you know, the emotional attachment to my daughter. But it also meant that I had to find uh, another way to get the uh, affirmation that I had gotten from being promoted all the time. And I realized that, and, and I mentioned, I published a ton of stuff, right? I get more satisfaction from teaching one good class than I got from anything I ever published, right? And, and I mean, I, I walk into the classroom, I'm, I'm full of excitement and I convey that to my students uh, 
I, I know how to talk to them, you know, as human beings. Uh, and I just sit on the edge of my desk and I start chatting about something that just happened to me in the hallway. And then gradually, you know, just go on to the lesson. But by that time, they're already listening to me, right? And I walk out of the classroom and I'm six inches off the ground full of adrenaline. And, and it just occurred to me that that was the most fulfilling thing that I could do was classroom teaching. And then in the same way that you know, I wanted to serve, I wanted to you know, do this UN gig, do all of this stuff, I realized that Bernard Baruch was this uh, financier uh, who uh, gave advice to, to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, and uh, the campus that they named for him because he gave this money is the, is the City University campus that has the business degree. And almost all of our students come there. We teach other stuff, but they come for the business degree. And when I first started, I was a typical academic in the liberal arts, you know, and I was above teaching business students. But I came to understand that for me personally, the most socially useful thing that I can do is to teach a good intro anthropology class to business students, right? And, and I have colleagues who still look down at the business students with disdain. And I say, what are you talking about? This is the best opportunity we have to be useful is to get these students to, to look at the world uh, in, a, in a different way. And also at City University, 95% of my students are working class immigrants. And they're, they're incredibly ambivalent about this. Their families have come to the United States because they wanna succeed, right? Succeeding in New York City means getting into business. And so they're driving their kids into business. At the same time, the family is, always talking about the old country that they left and the traditions and the culture and stuff like that. And it's a typical immigrant thing. They're torn between these. And I try to get my students to understand that's, that, that's not them, right? You're feeling torn is not your personal problem. It's a condition of the society that you live in. And I can see their eyes opening up, you know, their faces going, oh, you mean I'm not crazy personally. <laughs> I go, no, you're, you'd be crazy not to, have this response. And so I love it. That, that, that's why I can't quit teaching. You know, I'm almost 75 now and I have absolutely no interest in retiring because I find the classroom to be the most fulfilling place I can be next to holding my grandson. <laughs> oh, that's, that's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. But I, I agree. There, there's something I think that's often overlooked uh, with being in the classroom and the exchange of pedagogy and just it's, the experience really can be very motivating almost spiritual at certain levels yeah, you yeah. know uh there's some there's something other than just the transferring of knowledge that occurs absolutely right and, and i don't think it's quantifiable i don't think i can put my my finger on what it exactly is but there is something and and it right it's very powerful because you are definitely giving back to individuals uh, in a way that's going to help them grow in a way that, you know, like you're mentioning with your student population, it, it's helping them outside of just the classroom context, right? It's, it's, yes, you're helping them learn and advance uh, academically, but also understanding some things about their life that they might not have understood otherwise. I mean, there, there's a lot of powerful things that, that happen in the classroom setting. Absolutely. So Glenn, so, so you, so you have this clarity, all right, and, and you, and you understand really 
the valuable things in life, right? Uh, for you at this point, because uh, you've been very successful and now it's time to be successful as a family man. So you say that during this time period, since you were used to kind of moving forward, moving forward, moving forward, then when you had the time to, to stop and, uh, you know, these things started to come to the surface, right? When life yes. started soaking in. So can you, can you talk us through about the steps you took to, to kind of identify that, label it, and then work with, work with that in your well, life? Well, I mean, the first time that I became really clear on the, on the, well, okay, let me, let me stop back. For, for very complicated legal reasons, uh, I'm living in the state of New Jersey, um, if you have a, a service-connected disability um, and you take a civil service exam, you can go to the top of the list in New Jersey. And if you're not doing that, you can pass it on to your spouse. And, and my first wife was working for the state government and um, we, were, we were leaving to go off to the islands still. And um, she wanted to get, a, a, rather than the political position she had, she wanted a civil service position. And she asked me if I would apply for disability because um, uh, it would help her get this civil service. I, otherwise I would have never gone near, I would stayed away from the veterans community forever until, until that moment, at which point I put in and it took me four years and it was hell. It was, it was, that was back in the eighties and early nineties. And it was before everything shifted as a result of Afghanistan and Iraq. And they did everything, in the book, I actually document this. They gave claims officers bonuses for the number of cases they turned down. Um, that's, that's how bad it was, right? And so it took me four years and, and it was only because I lucked upon a Viet Vietnam Veterans Legal Foundation lawyer who had been a flyer in Vietnam who understood what I was talking oh, about wow. and right. knew how to get this case through. So we got it through. I got 30% uh, service connected for uh, PTSD. And then later I got 10% for my hearing loss, which has become really a big problem for me. Um, and it, ultimately I, I now have 70% PTSD and 50% hearing and 10% for tinnitus. I, it's, it's a combination of 90%, right? right? So this this built up and built up. But I say that the irony of this was that it was only in applying for the, the VA compensation that I began to understand what, what had happened to me because they forced me to really delve into this. So that was the first step. But then there was this episode a couple of years after I quit drinking, my daughter is quite small. I've taken my family uh, to the local park on the 4th of July to watch the fireworks. And uh, it's twilight, you know, it's getting darker. And suddenly I say, this is going to be anti-aircraft fire when I see these fireworks. And, and I'm going to get crazy. And, and we were there with friends. I said, get my, you know, my wife and my daughter home. I, I got to go. And I started walking, you know, slowly towards the parking lot and then walking faster. Pretty soon I'm running full tilt and I jump in my car and I drive home and I hide in the basement until my family comes home. And that's the point that I said, uh-oh, something's really wrong. And, and I was right. in AA by that time and I went to an AA meeting and I told this story. 
And, and a guy there said, I know uh, a guy who uh, had worked in a vet's hospital, a psychologist. Uh, he works with substance abuse. This is his specialty. Go see him. And I went and saw this guy and he listened to me and he said, you know, you're a few years sober. It's starting to come out of you. And he said, what you're going to find is that this is organic. It's in your body. There's no amount of talking that's going to make it away. You've got to get some medication, right? Well, I wouldn't do medication without some kind of treatment. So that began the sequence of working, trying to find the right medication, the right therapy. And, and that was, you know, in the mid nineties. And I, I've been doing that ever since then. I've done so many different kinds of treatment. I did this thing called EMDR that uh, is it's I, uh, motivation. And I, I can't remember what it stands for, but it, it's a, it's a, it's a, a thing in which you try to separate the sides of your brain. And it, what it did for me, it's, it's really interesting is that when I start this process of these eyes, these lights moving back and forth, I lose control of my body. I just start flapping around and leaping out and, and, and I, and I have no control over it. And the most important thing about that was for me, one of the uh, uh, aspects, one of the symptoms of, of stress and PTSD is denial that uh, like most vets, you know, I have this piece of me that says I'm tough and I can handle it. And if I can't handle it, then there's something wrong with me. I'm not a real man. And so I'm always in denial about this. And it was only when I lost complete control of my body. And I did this week after week after week. And it happened every time that I realized, Glenn, you're not making this up. It's really, really there. And, and, and this helped me uh, for a while. It's like other things helped me um, for a while. I could not bear the sound of helicopters because on an aircraft carrier, when you, when you step out onto the flight deck to man your aircraft, that's just the time that what are called the plane guards, the two helicopters that go off to either side to pick up anybody who crashes, right? But the, those helicopters are taking off. And anytime I hear a helicopter, I would suddenly be back on the flight deck going out to man my aircraft. And all that treatment got me through. So now I can listen to a helicopter and it doesn't freak me out anymore. So there, it's increments, there are increments and I get better and then it starts to get worse. And, and, and I, my experience in all of this is that there, there is a, a tendency, it's not widespread, but it's there of thinking that PTSD is something that you can cure. Um, and all my experience is you can treat it, but it's, it's so deeply embedded in you that you, you can't make it away, go away. All you can do is learn how to manage it. Right. Right, right. And like you said, it's a combination of things and you have to find what works for you. And a lot of that uh, from people I've talked to like yourself and from my experience is a lot of it's trial and error. You know, yes, absolutely. The they're like, absolutely. Well, try this, this medication, this there, you know, and then it just kind of keeps going. So you're like, oh, well, I think it's I think it's working. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I want to say this uh, just in this context because it's on my mind. The veterans system has two parts. It's the part where you do the claims, which I had really a lot of grudges against the way I was treated. But the medical, VAMC, medical centers are different. And, and there, there's been all kinds of reportage, uh, particularly a few years ago, about how bad they were. But I'm in Manhattan. The, the VA medical hospital is two blocks from my campus where I teach, right? And 
they're right next door to two of the greatest medical schools in the world, Cornell Weill and NYU Langone. And, and the, the, the medical staff at the hospital rotates continually back and forth between those teaching hospitals and the VA hospital. And I have full health coverage for my work. I get everything done at the VA hospital oh, because wow. they're so good there and there's no paperwork. There's not, you know, every, they do everything for you and they, they, they really take good care of me. And I just want to give, a, I always thank them profusely. I want to give a shout out to the quality of the veterans care that I get. And I, I understand that it varies, but I, don't, I hate to see the VA medical system painted with a broad brush because there are places that are better than standard medical care. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, when 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 the topic's brought up, it is such a you know a broad brush, but the the fact is, is you're exactly right. Each location is different, and there are some locations that are exactly like you're explaining, and then some locations that could use improvement. But when anything is that big of a system, you know, there it's that's right. Yeah, the case. that's going to be the case. So I'm glad to hear that that you've got such quality care and you know, uh, that, that you want to make sure that that's known because that's a refreshing, that's a re refreshing piece of information, you know, uh, for a lot of people, and especially those who don't have to use the VA. You know, my experiences have been overall really good. Uh, I've had one experience at the VA that could have been better, but other than that, you know, people complain about a long wait time. I just try to get there first thing in the morning. That's my <laughs> yeah, workaround. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I take the eight o'clock appointment and then it's never an issue. <laughs> well, great. So, so Glenn, so book number six, right? Talk us through this. Talk us through what, you know, when you sat down and in all your experience in the military and all your experience uh, in anthropology and, and all your life experience of, of, you know, that glue of everything in between, when you sat down to, to write this book, um, what was that like? And what did you want to make sure that you included in the book? Well, we have at my campus um, uh, uh, an endowment for uh, an interdisciplinary honors seminar. Uh, they offer them to a semester. And it's, and it's faculty from two different programs that teach together. And they make up a topic they want to teach together. And I had taught a couple of these uh, on various things. And um, one day I was just walking into my building and the, the guy walking through the door in front of me was uh, a, a guy that I knew from the psychology department. He was the head of the psych department. And so we had been into lots and lots of meetings together. And I knew that he worked with vets. And, and just like that, in, in that moment, as I'm walking through, I said, I wanna teach one of these interdisciplinary seminars with him. Uh, on, on war and, and post-war and um, I, I talked to him about it and he was eager to do it. And so we came up with this title called War and the Arc of Human Experience, which is okay. what, and, and, and what happened in it was that he would essentially analyze me in front of the students. He would dig into what it was like for me as a kid that led me into the war and what happened during the war and afterwards and, you know, I, I mentioned this in passing, but I, I think it's worth pointing out. Uh, he kept on saying that, that he had never worked with a professor 
who was more willing to expose themselves, to be honest and open in front of a class than me. And I said, well, I've been going to AA meetings for all these years talking about this stuff because that's, that's what AA meetings are for. So to me, it was the most natural thing in the world. But we really had this wonderful symbiosis. We taught that course twice at our campus, and then there's a special honors campus at City University. We taught it twice there. We taught it four times. And it was in the course of teaching that that I formulated what I wanted to do. And it was, I, I went back recently when the book just appeared to look when I started the first file on this. And it was uh, uh, 2013 uh, that I began um, working on this. So it, it's come out uh, eight years later. It took me from beginning to actually having the finished book in my hand. Um, and um, it was agony every step of the way. Um, and, and I, and I, you know, I, 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 I just, I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and everything I could think of. And then I winnowed it down. Uh, and then I started to tell the story and, and um, that there is uh, one piece that, that I'll mention that was really problematic. Um, because I was a flyer, I was in danger of being shot down and taken prisoner. And it just about happened in Red China. Um, and so I went through what's called SEER, S-E-R-E, Survival, uh, Escape, uh, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. I went through that training and I was tortured there. I, and, they, and they really torture you there to right. prepare you for this. And um, it had a big impact on me. I mean, it, it, what it, it, it told me when I was flying, you know, that I was in danger of being taken prisoner. And especially when I went into Red China, you know, that, that because... Um, that, that, that there was no way they would have rescued us. If we, if we had sh got shot down and survived, they couldn't come and get us, right? So it had that impact on me. But um, with um, Abu Ghraib and uh, Guantanamo and the black sites and all of this, there started this discussion of uh, the CIA and the, and, the, and the torture that was being done. And people were arguing about whether this really counted as torture or not. And then it came, uh, Jane Meyer in her book um, that was called The Dark Side, um, started writing about these academic psychologists who were overseeing that torture and documenting that they had been using SEER school to develop these techniques. And I realized that I had been used as a guinea pig to define the techniques that were being used to torture prisoners in Guantanamo and other places. And I just about lost it then. And so when I was writing this section, I could write a couple of lines, maybe a paragraph, and then I would just go collapse. It was just, you know, I, and, and I, I would come back and I would, and I would collapse. And my, my wife has talked about, you know, walking into the bedroom and, and seeing me uh, in a fetal position on the bed and saying, oh, he's writing again, you know, and, and that was um, the, the uh, piece of this that was the hardest to get through. Um, and then when I finally got it all done, what I was surprised by is, is that I think I have an interesting story to tell. Um, and I could not get a literary agent to represent me. Um, they, they said, it sounds interesting, but we can't sell it. And, and I had incredible difficulty finding I finally got a publisher who would do it. Uh, and I'm very happy with the job that they did at uh, Hamilton, which is part of Littleman Roman. Um, but uh, I, 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 it, it appears to me that 
memoirs of being in the military uh, are no longer uh, looked upon as being uh, salable. They're, they're too commonplace or something. I don't know. Huh. Very interesting. Very interesting because, I mean, you do see them, but also I would say your book is, is different than the typical memoir. That's what I think. Yeah, you, you're, you're, telling, uh, you're telling your story, but you're also telling the story to drive the fact that this human experience is different for everyone and there are different stages. And so that's, that's really, huh. Well, I'm trying to make the point that I'm doing this as much as an anthropologist as, as right. I am as a, as a veteran uh, and that I bring every ounce of everything I've learned in my 50 year career as an anthropologist to this story. Um, and, and the feedback I've been getting has been incredible. Uh, I, I just got a message yesterday um, from a professor at the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island, right. uh, asking me if I would contribute uh, a chapter to a book she's editing on Dr. Seuss and national security. <laughs> I mean, huh. I'm, I, it's, it's getting out there. <laughs> 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 that's great <laughs> you know when you're getting calls like that something's <laughs> something's striking a chord right yeah <laughs> excellent so glenn let me ask you sir i, I want to be mindful of your time um in our in our last few minutes here what what can we expect to see on the horizon uh can you talk to us about the release date of your book and any projects you might have on the on the horizon whether it's dr seuss related well the book came out a couple of weeks ago and, okay. and it's on amazon uh so it's there um and uh i i feel like i've mined that one really well um and and you know it, it, i have an understanding uh, now about um, some of the things that I got from the war uh, that I applied to my anthropology. The, the main one being that um, I, I'm profoundly empirical. I, I believe what I can see. And just because I can see something doesn't mean it's true. Uh, that that, that uh, you have to trust yourself and you also have to distrust everything because anything can go wrong at any point. And, it, to me, it's one of the profound contradictions of combat is that you simultaneously have to trust everybody on your team and distrust everybody because your ass is on the line and you know that everybody else is fallible. And, and just because they're your buddies and they're working hard doesn't mean that they can't screw up. And so right. you're putting your entire trust in them and you're also really ready for things to fall apart. So that shapes everything that I do. Um, but I talked about these interdisciplinary uh, seminars that I taught. And um, I have this lifelong uh, connection to Shakespeare. It, 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 was, it was a line from Julius Caesar that got me through uh, some tough times about the, the tide is at the full and you have to seize it because if you don't take the tide at the full, you will be for the rest of your life mired in the swamps of, of misery. And, and that helped me. I took a complete works of Shakespeare to Vietnam with me. Um, when, when I was not overseas, my squadron was stationed in San Diego and there is a replica of the old globe 
Shakespeare theater there. All right. So I, I was going to Shakespeare as a 18 year old enlisted man, right? And, and the islands where I work have these chief systems uh, and the, the politics of the becoming a chief are very similar to the politics in Shakespeare's time of becoming a king, dynastic succession. And so I got my campus's Shakespeare expert to teach a course on the politics of dynastic succession in six of Shakespeare's history plays compared with uh, the islands where I work. And we just taught that this past semester and it was fantastic. It was awesome. incredibly hard because I had never taught Shakespeare. I had to study these plays in, in ways that I never had before, but it really excited me. And then I got interested in, um, it, this, this is gonna sound esoteric, but I'm really fascinated by it. There was a movie that came out in 1964 called The Americanization of Emily, which is about uh, American military in London just before uh, D-Day and the invasion. And um, it was released at exactly the same time as the free speech movement began in Berkeley, which was the beginning of the 60s in resistance. Right. And I, when I realized that these two had came out at the same time, I started thinking about it because the Americanization of Emily is the first movie that is absolutely very clearly, specifically anti-war. James Garner, the guy who played Maverick, plays this American officer who explains why he's a coward. That's his religion. He doesn't want to get killed. And it goes, it's, it's, it's the centerpiece. It's not in the original novel. Patty Chayefsky, who was this brilliant screenwriter, won multiple Academy Awards, wrote the screenplay, and he inserted these key speeches about anti-war in that screenplay at just exactly that time that the free speech movement is building up. And then it leapt out at me as I'm reading Patty Chayefsky's speeches in here, that he's essentially quoting Falstaff in one of Henry IV plays, that Falstaff makes this famous diatribe against honor right? And explains why honor is crazy. You, 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 the only person who's got honor is a person who's dead, right? And this is exactly James Garner's speech in this play. And I'm writing an article that's trying to fit all this crazy stuff together again to show why the time was right, not only for the free speech movement, but that Patty Chayefsky knew that he could put this in that movie at that time. Uh, because it turned out that everybody who worked on that movie, the actors, the director, everybody were World War II veterans. And every one of them felt the same damn way about the war and all of the shit that people were talking about, how glorious it was to die. And they came together on this and agreed on it. And, and I think it's a fascinating story. That's absolutely fascinating. Oh, man. Oh, the parallels. I, I, I look forward to, to reading that and to seeing it out because... That, that's amazing. That's amazing. And that's amazing that you're able to take some of these concepts and pair them with Shakespeare and be able to teach classes and, and bring all that to life for others. That's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I can't, I can't believe I get paid to have so much fun. <laughs> Sometimes things aren't all bad, right? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm the rare bird that, uh, I, you know, it's funny because I'm really active in my union and, I, and I'm always pushing against the administration. 
I love to give the administration a hard time, but they all know I do it because I love the place and they, and they tolerate me, right? It's, there's, 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 a, there's, there's a tape recording of a faculty Senate meeting when I was, I was away off campus someplace and the, the president was, uh, finishes his uh, talk about the stuff and this is, are there any questions, Glenn? <laughs> they, they, he, he just assumed I was going to be the first one to stand up. But I mean, I, I love the institution. I love the students. And one of the things that, that I got out of the war and everything that came with it is that you have to um, protest. You have to speak up, that, that you have an, uh, an obligation not to hide. I think, I think tenure confers an obligation to speak up. Uh, and, and my experience is that tenure tends to socialize people. You get tenure if you keep quiet, so you keep quiet. Where, but for me, uh, I love to, to spout off, but only because I love the thing. <laughs> well, you're right though. I mean, uh, you know, and I think that's part of, of academics is, you know, we find things that we love and we want to improve them. And one of the ways of improving them is being critical. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it, it's no, it's no hard feelings. It's just saying, Hey, look, here's the weak spot. We can, we can do better. Here's how we do better. Right. Sometimes people don't want to hear that, but it's helpful. <laughs> Excellent. Well, ladies and gentlemen, today we have been joined with Dr. Glenn Peterson, full professor of anthropology and international affairs at Baruch College in New York. Again, Dr. Peterson, thank you so much for being with us, sir. Yes, I mean, it just occurs to me, there's an old expression of, I don't care what you say about me as long as you spell my name right. If, if people want to get in touch with me, uh, I, my name is always misspelled. There's two N's in the Glenn and an S-E-N in the Peterson, and then it's at baruch.cuny.edu, and I'm happy to uh, you know, have conversations with people. Beautiful, beautiful. And when we release this episode on our webpage and on LinkedIn, I will add the link to his email. And I will also add Dr. Peterson's, uh, the link to his book on Amazon for yeah. the listeners who are interested in, in picking that up. So I'll include those when we release this. And, uh, and hopefully in the future, uh, we can have you back on, sir, and, and get into some of these other things a little deeper because you, you ha you've had a very exciting life. And uh, I, I, know, I know this is going to be a great episode, so I know people are going to want to hear more. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure talking to somebody who knows what he's talking about. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but thanks. You do. Right. <laughs> Ladies okay. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you for, uh, as always, for your support. Thank you for listening. We appreciate you. And until next time, this has been Veterans and Academics. We thank all of you for listening. Veterans in Academics is an all-veteran production of Freedom and Prosperity Think Tank. Content creation is brought to you by Dr. Luke McLeese and Dr. Michael Bevers. Web development is by Osvaldo Vargas.